Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, and 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but with an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Once again, friends, it's a great joy to be with you in your homes and to share the good news of the gospel as we begin uh, the conclusion now of this series that we started about two months ago on the fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting, too, that this is really the conclusion of an entire year that we have spent looking at the wisdom material or the wisdom literature in the sacred canon in the Bible. If you'll remember, those of you who were with us back in August, the second Sunday in August, we began a series on Proverbs called Wise Up in which we began to think about this idea that wisdom begins with the fear of God, with reverence for the Lord. And we did a series on Proverbs. And then we moved to the book of Ecclesiastes in a series called Chasing the Wind, where we talked about how often we seek for fulfillment in all the wrong perspectives, all the wrong places before we return back to the source of all wisdom. And then we took a look at Job one day before the tornado In Nashville, one week before the pandemic, we began this series where we sat with Job and we began to ask the hard questions. Why suffering? Why me? Why do bad things happen to good people? And then after Easter, we ran uh, to the fruits of the Spirit, which is embodied wisdom. And as Casey said in her children's sermon, we've been doing this now for two months And what's interesting to me is this entire series about the fruit of the Spirit or embodied wisdom has been done in a context of disembodied fellowship where we've not been able to be in person with one another during this season of physical distancing. And who knew when we started last fall the kind of wisdom and fruit that would be necessary, that would be needed from the body of Christ right now. God knew. And so today we come to the conclusion, to the last and final fruit of the Spirit, the last characteristic, if you will, of those who embody Christ, the fruit of self-control. Somebody asked me the other day, is, is the sequence of these nine fruits, is the order of these nine fruits significant to us? Are, are they listed from greatest to least? And I gave a short answer, which is unusual for me. I said, no, I don't think so. I mean, to be sure, the first fruit 
is the greatest. Love is the premier, the preeminent fruit of the entire basket. And as we said all along, to some degree, all the other fruits are really expressions of love. That's true. But I've noticed that whenever Paul in his writing gives a list or a litany of things, that whatever he mentions first and last, those two things tend to be the most important. And so I think we can say with assurance that this last fruit is very critical. I don't have to tell you, you've noted it during this time of disembodiment, that it takes a lot of self-control to be loving, doesn't it? It takes a lot of self-control to be joyful, to be peaceful, to be patient and kind. It takes tremendous self-control to be good, to be faithful, to be gentle. And so I think you can make a case for the fact that the Apostle Paul intentionally bookends the fruits of the Spirit with the two most necessary attributes, which are love and self-control. The word in Greek is inkrateia, inkrateia, which literally just means self-mastery, mastering yourself or self-restraint, self-discipline. Here's what Paul doesn't mean by that term. He is not saying that self-control is self-controlling self. He's saying that self-control is self in submission to the power of God, self-dying to ourselves in order to be obedient to Christ and to His Holy Spirit that is within us. Now, it's interesting that you can find numerous verses, particularly in the Proverbs, that stress the importance of self-control, like Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a person who lacks self-control. Is that ever true? Or Proverbs 16, verse 32, it is better to be patient than to be powerful. It is better to win control over yourself than to win control over cities. Those two verses remind me a little bit of Elie Wiesel the Jewish Holocaust survivor, wonderful writer, who once wrote these words, listen to this, ultimately the only power to which man should aspire is that which he exercises over himself. It's interesting that Paul says the same kind of thing to his young protege, Timothy, in the second epistle Chapter 1, verse 7, God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. There it is again, in Kratea. Now, to help us understand, to help us grasp the importance of this fruit, it's interesting that Paul uses an analogy from the world of sports. Now, I'm dating myself here, but does anybody remember when we used to have sports Anybody, anybody remember any of that? Uh, we have been on a sports fast for four months now. And, and some of you, there was no March Madness. There was no Masters golf tournament in April. There was no playoffs in hockey. There, there, there was no soccer. There was no baseball. We just went cold turkey from all sports. In fact, times 
for us have gotten so desperate that I've taken up frisbee golf and cornhole. That's about all the sports until we discovered this week that Major League Baseball is starting back on the weekend of July 24th. Oh, there's revival in the air for baseball, and we're all excited about that. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the example of an athlete to teach us about self-control. In effect, the apostle says it takes the same kind of training... It takes the same kind of unwavering focus and discipline to be a disciple as it takes to be a world-class athlete. Now, I'm convinced that when Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians, the venue that he had in mind was the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games, that competition was second only to the Olympics in terms of prestige and fame. The city of Corinth would host the Isthmian Games every other year, every two years, and competition included not only athletics but poetry and music, and in the athletic domain, it included things like running, wrestling, and boxing, two of which are cited in 1 Corinthians 9 in Paul's text, running and boxing. Now, if you were lucky enough to be chosen to participate in the Isthmian Games, you were put through a rigorous training. There was a 10-month training program that would get you fit to compete in athletics at the highest level. And so this is what Paul has in mind when he writes in chapter 9, verse 25, that Carol read for us, athletes must exercise self-control in all things. Not just in your sport, not just in your particular area, but in all things, in the way you eat, in the way you sleep, in the way that you work, in the way that you play, in the way that you practice, in the way that you train, in the way that you live, all things. These world-class athletes had to be possessed by a single purpose, and they were a single focus victory. Whatever it cost in terms of their preparation, in terms of getting themselves in shape, they had a single goal in mind, victory, winning. They do it, says Paul, in order to win a perishable wreath, a wreath that would have been made in the ancient days out of pine leaves or, or celery. But we do it, says Paul, for an imperishable wreath but one that does not fade and wither with time. Now, there are several things in this analogy that I'm convinced can help increase our self-control, and some of these are just obvious. They almost go without saying. One of them is keeping your focus, mental imaging. In other words, keeping your attention centered on the end result, the end game the tape, the goal of your faith. In other words, it's important to know why you do what you do. It's critical to know why you're running this race and even more so who you're running for. There's another thing that's implicit in this text, that if you're going to run with endurance and self-control, Paul implies that you have to get rid of the dead weight You have to cast off everything 
that may hinder you and hold you back. In fact, Hebrews 12 picks up on this imagery. Listen to these words, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. All those things are important, but there's one other thing I think that is implicit in this text that all athletes understand early on in their training. You have to learn to run with pain. You have to keep moving. You have to keep going even when you're hurting. Now, I'm not a marathon runner, but I know those who are, and I'm impressed by them. And I've been told by those who go 26.2 miles that the most difficult part of the race is not the start. Anybody can start. It's not even the finish, they say. The most difficult part of the marathon is between mile 18 and 23. In other words, two-thirds of the way into the race. That's where it becomes most difficult. They can hold a steady pace in the majority of the race, but somewhere between mile 18 and 23, they hit a wall. They hit a deep weariness, a fatigue, physically and mentally. They describe it as something that happens where self-doubt begins to creep in. The aches and pains of every step in every joint cause the runner to wonder, can I finish? And sometimes to wonder, why did I even start in the first place? If you're going to run the race, you have to learn to run with pain. Or as we used to say in baseball, no pain, no gain. And what Paul is saying is, that's not only true for athletes, that's true for disciples. Jesus made no bones about it. He was pretty clear when he said, whoever comes after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to pick up a cross and follow me. Paul echoes that sentiment in the last chapter in Galatians, Galatians 6, where he says, you must learn not only to pull your own weight, you must learn to shoulder the burdens of others who are beside you. I think that Paul was an athlete. I know that he respected great athletes. And we also know that Paul knew about pain, didn't he? In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, isn't it interesting that Paul actually inventories his pain? He itemizes his suffering. He talks about his beatings because of his faith. He talks about being stoned because of his faith. He talks about shipwrecks and persecution. He talks about criticism and harassment. He he talks about toil and hardship. He talks about staying up all night, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, being cold and naked. And in addition, he adds the most stressful part for Paul was his concern for the church that he served. It's interesting that if ever Paul boasted, and he did from time to time, it was never about his strength. 
It was about his weakness. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who said, when I am weak, then I'm strong. He learned to run with pain. But he learned something else, too. He learned that God can actually use his pain to produce perseverance. I think it was Victor Hugo who said, it is suffering that turns human beings into angels. It was Philip Yancey who said, when when suffering happens, it forces us to confront life in a different way than we ever have, than we normally do. I don't know if this is true for you, but I've discovered in in nearly 40 years of ministry that the strongest people I have ever known have not been those who never knew suffering, but are those who suffered greatly, who understood pain, who learned to run with pain. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 5. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We've got to learn to run with pain. Paul also mentions boxing in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. I think the same is true in the ring. It is not enough to be able to deliver a knockout punch you have to learn to take a punch. I saw recently, maybe you saw in the news this week, that Iron Mike Tyson is making a comeback. At the age of 53, he is climbing back into the ring. He's one of the fiercest competitors that the sports world has ever known. But there was a time years ago that he developed a reputation for not being able to take a punch. Commentators noticed that if he got really hit hard, he would begin to lose control. He would begin to lose focus. He, he forgot his game plan. And rather than absorbing the blow and recalibrating, he would immediately go on the attack without the strength to do so. And some of you remember that famous match. In one of those matches, his opponent was Evander Holyfield that Iron Mike Tyson became so unglued that he bit off a part of the ear of his opponent, and consequently, he was disqualified. A loss of self-control will disqualify your witness. You've got to learn to take a punch and to maintain this sense of self-control. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at when he tried to teach us to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, to forgive your brother or sister 70 times seven. You've got to learn to take a punch. You've got to learn to run with pain. It's the fruit of self-control. There's one other thing I want to mention in this text. The Isthmian Games were more about individual competition. And this is where the analogy breaks down just a little bit for us. Because discipleship is not an individual 
competition. Discipleship is a team thing. So in order to endure to the finish, you can't do it by yourself. You've got to yield to the will of the coach, or in this case, to the will of the teacher, for the good of the team, for the good of the fellowship, for the good of the body. Dr. William Schaffner is professor of infectious diseases at Vanderbilt. He's a wonderful scientist and a wonderful man. I read the other day that Dr. Schaffner now has been placed in 29,984 media placements where he is giving guidance to those of us who are struggling with the pandemic. In other words, he has reached 77 billion people with his message. He's a professor at our own university in Nashville at Vanderbilt. And William was being interviewed last week as to why it is that the U.S. seems to be trending up in COVID cases while much of the world seems to be trending down. Dr. Schaffner mentioned the large cultural differences between our country and other countries. And then he said, and I quote, There is often a greater social consciousness in some other countries, but here in the U.S., our country that we love, we tend to be more individualistic in our culture, and many among us just want to go out and be me and do what I want to do, and we're tired of the cabin fever, and I understand that, he said. It is very difficult to persuade everyone to exercise self-control to wear a mask, and to behave in a prudent fashion. I have another good friend who is a doctor at Vanderbilt, and one of his favorite expressions, I I love this, I ask him, doctor, why do you wear a mask? He said, pastor, I don't wear a mask to protect me, I do it to protect you. Because it's not always about my right, It's about my love and concern for you, for others. There is an infection on the loose that can be more harmful than COVID. I've noticed sometimes there's way too much I in us. And there's not nearly enough we. I've discovered that I, I don't necessarily win when others lose, Jesus takes the opposite tack. He says, sometimes you win by losing, losing myself for a purpose bigger than I, me, and mine. This is exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew 16 when he said, whoever wants to save her life will lose it, but whoever is willing to lose her life for my sake will save it. That's self-control. That's learning to run with pain. That's, that's learning to absorb the suffering in a way that winds up shaping our witness. That's self-control. One other word, and I'm finished. Many of you know that for 31 years I had the privilege of serving churches in the North Georgia area before I finally came home to Brentwood. 
My friend Bill Britt called me the other day. He's senior pastor at this church, Peachtree Road United Methodist Church. It's in Atlanta near Midtown. It is sort of the equivalent of Brentwood Church in Atlanta, Georgia. We were talking on the phone. We were conferring about our concerns over the racial divide, over the pandemic, over all of our concerns going forward and our concern for you, for the church. He told me that one night a few weeks ago, it was the last part of May, that things in the Buckhead area where the church is located became pretty tense. He said most of the protesting had been peaceful, but in the area where the church is located, he said there were roughly 70 businesses one night that were vandalized, looted, and severely damaged. It caused millions of dollars worth of damage, but they didn't do anything to the church. The church was one of the few structures in the area, he said, that remained untouched. And Bill said, it wasn't until the day after that I really understood why that was the case. As a large group of looters approached the church, he said, there were 10 homeless men on our front porch. Sometimes they'll sleep on the front porch of the church. And in the morning, we'll feed them breakfast When those ten men saw this gang of looters coming, five of them took off when they saw the crowd, but five of them stood right in front of the church, and they pleaded with these folks not to do this, not to harm God's house. It was a mixed racial group of five men, and they were saying to this crowd, this is a good place. They help us too. They love us. Don't harm this house. And suddenly, the looters turned away and they kept going. Because of five homeless men who, in spite of their fear, looked beyond themselves and their own safety to care for the body. The church recently lifted those five men up as heroes, and they're now helping them find jobs and a home of their own. I tell you this because you're not going to see this in the news. You're not going to see this in the media, but I'm telling you in the kingdom of God, this is front page stuff. This is headlines. This is breaking news. This is gospel. Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. And those five guys, they've got some fruit. Second to love is the fruit of self-control. And my Lord, how we need it. We need it. Not so that we can maintain the status quo, (laughs) but so that we can absorb the pain And seek God's help to use it in a way that brings hope and restoration and reconciliation to a world that has lost its way. That's what you're running for. That's why you don't stop. That's why even when you feel the aches and pains on the way through, you just keep right on going. Paul says it like this, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a wreath 
that is imperishable. We will reap a harvest if we keep on. You can run with pain because you know that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in you for the sake of us <laughs> to the glory of God. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.